Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Legal Lens, the podcast of NUI Galway's Law Society. Today, in advance of our Tom O'Malley moot, we are going to be discussing mooting, skills and advice, and pretty much just a crash course in litigation, so to speak. And we are lucky enough to be joined by Ursula Connolly of NUI Galway and Barrister Phoenicia Taylor. Uh, ladies, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I'm probably fully aware that you're extremely busy at the minute. Um, welcome. So I just, do you want to spend two minutes and just give us a bit of your background? Yeah, sure. So will I go first? So I'm Ursula Connolly and I've been a lecturer at the School of Law at NUI Galway for the past 20 or so years. Principal area of teaching is tort law, which is probably familiar to people as negligence and civil litigation and a bit of Irish legal systems. But for the past six years or so, I've been heavily involved in developing mooting within the School of Law, which is what brings me here to this podcast today. I'm Venetia Taylor. I'm a practicing barrister since 2011. I'm the former chair of the Young Bar Committee and former member of the Bar Council of Ireland also. I mainly practice commercial and land law, but I have a general practice also. Personally, just to get us started, I suppose, just for people that may be doing this for the first time, what actually is mooting and the values of it? I mean, because I personally often hear is like, I don't, I never bother to moot because, you know, I don't want to be a barrister. I want to be a yeah. solicitor. But, um, but I know now that you campaigned and I think succeeded in establishing a compulsory skills module in mooting for yes. second year. Uh, do you want to... Basically, yeah. tell us about kind of all of that. Essentially, what mooting is, is where participants, whoever it is, students typically in our case, you're given a hypothetical set of facts uh, for which then the participants have to prepare legal arguments as if they were the legal counsel in a case. So really, it's an attempt, you know, when we use it in an educational setting to replicate what it would be like to really work as a lawyer. So essentially, that's it. It makes it's always really interesting because we always use kind of a novel area of the law, which is not being firmly decided by the courts and then the participants have to prepare the legal arguments themselves, typically in a team of two, but it can be done individually. And then they come into a courtroom setting. In Galway, we've been lucky enough to always use the actual Galway courthouse. And we've always had a sitting judge as well preside over the moot to adjudicate it. So it's been a fantastic experience for students. But you're right, there has been a reluctance, certainly in the beginning when we established mooting in Galway first, it was actually incredibly difficult to get students to participate. I remember one year we had, I think about six and when you know our maximum that we were going to take was an optional module at the time was 20 and then we slowly increased it so last year happy to report you know we had almost 50 applications and we increased the number of places to 30 so the interest has definitely increased but why the reluctance you might ask well in addition to what you said well you know this idea that if I don't want to be a barrister there's no point in me taking something like a moot module in addition to that I think students have been put off by an idea that it's much harder than a regular module module. And I wouldn't say it's harder, but it certainly is different. And that then brings us to, well, what are the advantages of mooting? Mooting is one of these modules, you know, it's a skills module, and it's just brilliant for developing those transferable skills that you're going to need if you go working anywhere. So from the perspective of law, it's fantastic for legal critical analysis. Like you really have to know the cases, know the law in order to be able to find those principles that will best help your client in the moot. So that's the first challenge. And in developing those skills, then you become much better generally at being a critical and analytical thinker. So great for that, great for research skills, great for writing skills, and great for presentation skills. Like some of the students that I've most admired are the ones who are absolutely 
terrified of standing up and saying anything in front of anyone. So they come in on the first day and even the bit where you have to hop up and give your name, that is challenging for them. And then they get to the stage that they're able to stand in front of a judge of the High Court or the Court of Appeal or Circuit Court and then deliver their legal arguments in front generally of their peers. I mean, that's an incredible achievement and the sense of empowerment you get from that and the sense of confidence you get from that is really unparalleled. So in addition to those, you know, just generally presentation, speaking skills, legal research, writing, analysis, all of that very important. You, you, you know, we, we always pair students up into teams and even for the non-module moots, like the one you engaged in, and Matthew, and you might talk about that yourself, but you, you work in a team and, you know, they aren't necessarily your friends. So you have to learn to get along with people, to figure out what their working style is, um, to adapt to that, you know, to deal with problems where they arise. And that's in, incredibly important too for when you go out, you know, to work in what we call the real world, but we're always in the real world. But when, when you go out into employment are, are generally in your life, I would say they're very important skills. So yeah, mooting just as a module, as something to do at some point, including now the Tom O'Malley moot, which we'll be getting to later. But it's incredibly valuable to students to try and engage in mooting at least once during your 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 career or your time at university. Fantastic. And Venetia, were you all, just to kind of move it over then, um, were you always a natural speaker, argumentative, or was this something that like Moody maybe helped you develop and kind of you kind of developed this kind of career as you went through university and Moots and yeah, kind of scaled um, up to it? And then I basically suppose- like how different is it moving from Moots into the actual courts? Well, I would have done debating in school. That's probably where it started from. But yeah, absolutely. I felt mooting. When I was in college, you, you didn't really understand the value of it. And it's only afterwards when you're in practice, you can see actually what a great opportunity that was. So I really would encourage people to do this module and uh, to get actively involved in mooting because it may seem abstract, but in reality, it's no different to receiving a set of facts from a client you've never met. So it's the same principles applied when you get your brief for your mooting competition, that you have to sit down, you have to go through it, you have to weed out what is what are the real points in it, what's helpful, what's not helpful, and go through your case and do all that preparation work. The same as when you're doing mooting and identifying what the law is that was assist to, it will assist your case. And uh, as Ursula said, you know, the research skills you'll get from that also. So I'd absolutely say mooting in college, if you did want a career at the bar in particular, or even as a solicitor, it will stand to you. Absolutely. So you should absolutely do this module. How different is actual court? How should like a student, let's say, moving for either the first or second time be presenting themselves? Like, how do you be persuasive? Yeah, well, well, first of all, when you get your brief, you look at well, what is my case? And um, you try to identify any helpful or unhelpful information, try to segregate the facts from inferences or any conclusions that, you know, the client might give you an instruction that would, the client will set out the facts as they see them. And you have to go through them and you have to try and identify as any facts that are very helpful to you or unhelpful to you. And then you have to think about how do I go about proving these helpful facts? And what's my case now, essentially? That's the way I would look at it or I would address it. Once you have your papers, then obviously in real life, you would have a consultation with a client and uh, go through any of them difficulties that you'd have. But in terms of the practical sense, going to court compared to mooting, well, obviously we have our court rules that set out 
what the rules are of court but there's something else that uh, people wouldn't be aware of I don't believe in college level which is practice direct- directions that the judges give out so they're mm-hmm. something that people need to be mindful of on the courts.ie website so if you really want to be at this advanced adequacy level and say it's in a moot personally if and maybe it's something Ursula can consider when she's doing grading you know if students actually look to the practice direction as well as just the court rules that would really bring you up to a, an advanced level practically from a in the real world if you like it's very important to know your judge uh, and that sounds a peculiar term but it's really helpful to understand who you're appearing before now obviously that can't be translated into into the mooting uh, world but you know if you have a real judge at the end of a um, competition you can ask people who what do they think of this judge some judges are just no nonsense judges so you might be able to run some certain arguments on front of another judge and you won't be able to run them or you won't get much traction so that's why being a barrister in a sense that when you're specializing as in you are just working in the courts day in day out you get to know who the judges are and that is really um a critical thing to uh, to know and understand and if you don't know the judge and you're starting out at the bar or you're a solicitor and you want to know you, you phone a colleague and that's why collegiality is so important and that's kind of hitting back to what Ursula was talking about when you're doing mooting you might be with in teams or with people that you may not necessarily know in college you know that translates into real life too you will talk to people that you won't be friends with and you have to build up rapport with them and this is why basically how you behave in your professional life with people is very important because people will trust you more if they see you as a good colleague and you're helpful to people and you don't take people short so you know that's that's why the collegiality is extremely important at the bar and as a solicitor but also throughout any working career anyone takes on that your your word is good and uh, people can come to you and talk to you and you'll help people. So practically speaking, really the, the, the main part of your work as a barrister is preparation. And if you're prepared, then you will be persuasive. Preparation is a very significant piece of your work. And if you, to coin the phrase of the scouts, you know, if you fail to prepare, prepare to fail. And, you know, your, your case can be your facts. If it's a personal injuries case, it's very factual based as opposed to legal based. But most cases you will have to rely a lot on, on the law. So to do that, then you'll have to go through your case, as I said, identify what your issues are and then look at what the law is to see how that supports your case. So this, again, can be applied to mooting. So you would do that. And once you have your case and your structure, normally you would have do legal submissions for the court. And they will be your guideline as well for how your case is going to run. But on the day of a court hearing, you may decide I'm going to pick my best three points because this particular judge will not entertain me going off um, for a long period of time. So I pick my three best points. I can rely, stand over my submissions to the, the court so they will still have them. So you're not losing them arguments, but you can then focus on your, say, your three best points and run them. So in terms of preparation for the actual hearing itself, obviously you will have booklets, much the same as mooting. So in that you, if it's a big case, you may have combined book of authorities or combined booklet for the court. In mooting, I'd imagine you have your own prep your own preparation done in that regard. It's imperative, and this is both for mooting and for in practice, that that booklet, that you have enough copies that the person you're against and the judge will have the exact same booklet and it be paginated. Can't stress this enough because this is where people become very unpersuasive. When they hand up, and this happens in real life, this still like this happens in practice. Some barristers have done this. I've seen it. They would hand it up and it may not be the same booklet that they're dealing with or the one they've given their opposite number. And if you do that, then it's, it's a bit of a frame in court if you like people are going through pages or where is that and it puts you off so being prepared with 
even that small administrative task is extremely important. So your solicitor, a solicitor will generally prepare it, but I would always take a copy in advance to make sure that you're satisfied that they have paginated properly because that will really put you off. You know, you're there to do a job, present a case to win the case or defend it successfully. And if that's not done, that can be a, it's a silly error, but it will really put people off. So when preparing for mooting even, make sure you have your booklets in order that they're paginated. And another helpful tip I would give, and this again for practical for anyone that's become a barrister as well, is when you have your submissions done for the court, have your own copy and write down on the side of it or put a note in that this the evidence say it's page 15 of the booklet. So that when you're going through it with the court, you're not having to just rely on your memory that you can look down and say, yes, judge, I can bring you to that. But just going back a step then prior to that, well, how do you go into, you go into court and you address the court and it's always, may you please the court. That is done in practice, like you, you'll be told that in mooting, but that is how we address the court. May it please the court. And that's you trying to introduce yourself. If you haven't been before the judge before, it wouldn't be unusual to introduce who you are. I'm Venetia Taylor and I appear on behalf of the respondent. And then you would say, I'm instructed by, and you would say the name of your solicitor firm. If, you know, the judge is familiar to you, then you wouldn't necessarily have to introduce your name because he or she would know you. So that's how it would start it. I would sit down. Two parties should never, the two barristers should never stand at the same time when they're addressing the court, only if the court is addressing both counsel. So when you stand up and say, may it please the court, I appear on behalf of the plaintiff. My name is Misha Taylor. I'm instructed by McCarthy and McCarthy solicitors. You can sit down then and allow your friend to stand up and then introduce him or herself who they are. And if it's your case, then you will stand up again and you can then give a, just a general summary of the case. This is a summary judgment judge. Uh, it's a matter that relates to a debt of 2.6 million. You know, you just give an outline of the case to the judge and then you can start opening it. Make sure the judge has a copy of the booklet. Wait for the judge. Always be very respectful to the judge at all times. So that's This is very important as a barrister is to show respect. Even if you don't agree with what the judge is saying to you, you don't have a fight with the judge. Uh, just to interrupt you, I just got a point on that. How would you then kind of maybe respectfully disagree with the judge or kind of stand your ground on a professional mm-hmm. yet respectful basis? Yeah, well, I suppose it depends on what the facts there, what you're saying. But, you know, you could say, well, judge, our position is. So that's you telling him, you know, I've heard what you've said. Well, judge, our position is they didn't get the money at that stage. They got it at this stage. Do you know what I mean? So you're you're showing that we don't agree with you and these are the reasons why. But it's not you going into, no, you're not listening. You're not listening to, you know, do, you don't do that. You just say, well, judge, maybe maybe if the judge has given you a situation where you could see where the judge is coming from, you could say, oh, yes, judge, but if you look, if I bring you to tab four of the booklet and you look at this document, you'll see that that's, that is the reason why we don't support that position. Do you get me? I was just going to say, just going back to maybe both of you then, that um, maybe you can kind of compare the differences and maybe get to Ursula's opinion as well. But kind of on language, I mean, I often hear that it's all referring to your opposition, I suppose, as your learned colleague and learner this and stuff like that. And sometimes to me, you know, as not a professional, that kind of sounds a bit pretentious. I would tell you not to do that. Mm. I know we often have some of our former students who are practicing barristers now come in and deliver a couple of the classes to the students, which is always a kind of a great treat. But they would say sometimes it might come across a little bit sarcastic if you're referring, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yes, like you're, you're saying a learner, mm. sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. When you're, say you're doing a case where it's an appeal situation Mm. and you're appealing a decision of say the high court and the court of appeal so you are criticizing the judgment of a judge Mm. that's what you're doing and in that situation i would always refer to the learned judge yes entirely to show that 
look, the judge is learned. This, yeah. you know, we obviously disagree with the conclusions that 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 judge came to. We do refer to him as the learned judge, but you would absolutely never in practice say my learned friend. Yeah, that's just uh, practically speaking, because it does sound like what you're saying there. It's kind yeah. of not sarky a little bit. Yeah. You know. But just, yes, like you're not being yeah. completely genuine in it. Yeah. You just say my friend. You always just refer to the person mm. you're against or their name if you, if yes. you know them. I, I just would, would refer to my friend. That's, and that's the easiest way as well, especially if you're starting out. Maybe you don't know everybody. So you look, obviously, if you're running a case, you should make it your business to know the person's name you're against. Um, and the same with mooting. Mm. But you could say uh, Miss Connolly has made the argument that, yeah, yeah, um, and that's but, generally actually in mooting, Venetia, what we would encourage students to do because, of course, typically they would know their names. But also it almost is a sign that you've been paying attention to who, who is on the yeah, opposite team, you know. Exactly, yeah. 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 So interested uh, listening to you, Venetia, to kind of pick up on the similarities and the differences of mm. what it's like for you in practice and, and, you know, the constraints, we'll say, of mooting, which is always going to be a little bit different. But I was also struck by the similarities. You know, you were talking about the character of the judges and to know your judge and we've been really lucky to have a number of judges come come and adjudicate our moots and for sure you can see that there are striking differences in their approach and we do give the students a bit of a heads up you know well like you know don't be surprised if within five seconds you're going to be stopped and ask something and there are judges yes who are far less likely to entertain any kind of confusion or Mm. muddying of the facts or um, you know or presuming things that weren't necessarily laid out in the facts which which is fantastic training for the students themselves but can be a bit intimidating as you can imagine as well yeah and it's intimidating for even for barristers that are practicing Mm. if you have somebody throwing a lot of questions at you personally I I like that because it makes me more relaxed because I'm engaging with the judge then but some people if you that's why if you're too script prepared Mm. and you can be in trouble because you're planned it out in a certain way, this case is going to run this way. And that's fine if a judge would sit there and just listen mm. and will take up the booklets, will reserve its judgment and go away and think about it. But some judges are more active and will have, possibly if the papers were handed up in advance, they will have sat down and read those papers. So they're familiar with the facts already. So they don't want to hear you go into all the minute detail about the case that they don't believe is relevant. They just want to get to the number of it because t- the time is important for them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Just on that point before we move on, do you need to ask permission to open every single case or are you just going to get to a stage where a judge is just going to get annoyed with you? No, I would never, I wouldn't really, do I ask for permission to open cases? I would really set out my case. I would talk about my case and then I would say I'm relying on the judgment of, I would read out the the citation and I just, I first of all say, judge, if you could open the booklet of authorities and I'll look at the judge and wait to see he has it or she has it open in front of her and it's at tab four and I give them the opportunity to go to tab four. So don't rush ahead of the judge. You're there at the service of the judge, if, if you like. And then I would say, I'm just going to bring you to paragraph. You know, So if you had a submission done already in advance, you will have picked out the paragraph you're relying on in that case. Now, it's very important. And it, I was caught out this in mooting 
back in the day is picking cases that suit your you know argument but not reading the case okay so you might find it when you're able to use you probably have Lexis Nexus and, and different uh, legal websites that you found something that sits fits your purpose but you haven't read the whole case or you don't remember it a judge could easily and this is a mooting as well ask you what is the facts of this case or they might be familiar with it and say well that case is a bit different because of this is that not correct so if you're going to rely on a case make sure you understand what the case is about at minimum yeah. but I would you know strongly recommend that you would read a case because that's where you're going to look unpersuasive you look like a bit of a chancer now to be honest yeah absolutely, um, absolutely. and yeah. I, I would agree like I would always in mooting you know encourage students to really rely on very few cases you yes. know if you have four or five cases but you need to know them forensically and you need to know the weaknesses in the case that you're using and it, it just absolutely it is far like so far short of enough to simply take a little paragraph from a case that 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 can't happen really in a moot. You would need yeah. to know what came before it, what was the context, what came afterwards. Yes, exactly. Ab- yeah, absolutely yeah. clear on the law that you're using. And that's the great thing about mooting. And I guess that's the great thing about legal practice too, Venetia, how how well you familiarize yourself with the with mm. the cases that you're using. Yeah. And, and a critical thing as well is when you in real life and probably in mooting, depending on your structure, if you get submissions in advance, preparation isn't just your side. You have to think about the other side's arguments. What argument are they going to make? What's their case? And if you get submissions in advance, you can see the case that they're hanging their hat on, for want of a better word. Go through them cases. I was only in a case recently where that was done, where a barrister, a senior counsel, had relied on a number of cases. And when you read the submissions, you would think, I'm sunk. This is a, They have made a great case for themselves. But then taking the time to actually pick through the cases that they've they've relied on I was able to distinguish each and every one of those cases why the court shouldn't go with them if you like because I've distinguished them and this is why maybe they're not relevant on the facts maybe they can be distinguished that way or maybe even as you've said Ursula a lazy approach has been taken Mm. and people are lazy inherently so they may have taken a case and thought that's the good law until they looked at it seven months ago because maybe they're practicing in this area all the time mm. and they haven't checked the court's website for maybe some recent cases that come out in the last few weeks. Mm-hmm. And that's when then they get in trouble because then they look like they're misleading the court, even though they're not doing it intentionally. You have an obligation to check that the law you're relying on is the best law, is the up-to-date law as well. So the obligations for a barrister isn't just, we're not a mouthpiece for a client. Our first obligation is to the court. So we have to be very careful about that too, that even if a case isn't in our favour, we shouldn't be um, hiding it from the court. We should try and distinguish it and say, look, we're fully aware that there was a case, McMahon and Bingy, that has dealt with something, a similar point here. But we say this is distinguishable on this basis. One, two, three. Yeah. And actually, so, that's something that's different, I guess, in the moot compared to legal practice. You were talking to Venetia about being aware of what the opposing arguments might be in a moot. Well, the moots that certainly we run for the module, you need to prepare both sides. So both the, it's usually in the appeal case, so both the appellant and the respondent, so that you should be quite familiar with what the opposing team's arguments, arguments would be and be, be in a position yeah. to rebut them, which of course in practice you may not be as familiar because you've only prepared one side. Um, and you're yeah. right about being bang up to date as well, because certainly, you know, if you're studying a substantive law module, you know, in contract or constitution, 
professional or tort a criminal, you tend to rely on the textbooks and that's fine for the purpose of an exam. Nobody is going yes. to, you know, yeah. mark and, you and down. I, I do go to a textbook personally, mm. you know, I wouldn't yeah. be uh, putting my nose up. The textbooks are great for just kind of a quick overview, like a nutshell, essentially. That's what yeah. I look at books like now. You would just look at them and it will give you, it will give you the steer and it's a good yeah. exam tip, I suppose, for people as well. Look at the cases in it and then go into, you probably have justice. You probably have a few yeah. legal, I don't, I don't know which one to use, which a lot of the, the legal websites or research sites, if you type in a case, you can see, has this been distinguished or where was mm. this endorsed, this case? So then you can you can have a look to see if there's any new cases since then. Yeah. And they're the kind of things we cover, you know, in the methodology of how you go about researching for your moot. The first port call is always the textbook. So you just get a basic, as you said, Venice, exactly a steer. And then yeah. you go into really looking forensically at some of the key cases mm-hmm. on those databases you mentioned. We have, yeah, you're right, Justice. We have Lexis, Butterworths mm-hmm. as well. We've Westlaw. We, we've so many, in fact. Oh, they're uh, all the, the name ones yeah. that we use. So, yeah. you, you know, so. you, the students are getting the same as a barrister Great. is getting. And then oh, we always say for the moose, you know, and that, that might be fine if we say up for substantive law module but then for the moot you need to get on the courts page to see has there been anything reported in the last six months or 12 months that might not have made it to the databases yet yet changes or uh, clarifies the law in some way which hasn't yet been you know more broadly reported so exactly as you're saying there's a delay yeah because there is a big delay on these cases going into the um, the Irish report yeah entirely so absolutely um, it would be folly or it would be very negative for somebody not to do that if I'm yeah. honest yeah that that could be a lead to a very embarrassing situation in court for somebody yes and uh, likewise even in pr- mooting sense that you would want to be there on one side and the other side produce a 2020 decision and you're like what mm. I didn't yes. even think about that and it, again the courts the courts website has changed a bit in the last few months if you've been on it's changed yeah. to a beta page yeah, no, it it's has. not as yeah. easy I find to do searches on it I um, agree but I think they're still working on that but mm. you can certainly do keywords and look for cases on that and it might be something that the college could even consider doing you know like a library thing where they could do kind of keyword searches to help students even yeah no absolutely yeah. I agree with you actually on the on the new format on the, the for the beta one it isn't yeah. as user friendly and in fact the search terms don't bring up the cases you actually know are there yeah. so yeah. Um, I exactly. guess they're tweaks yeah. but you know again something like a moot module you know to bring us back to it they are the kind of things that we get time to explore in a way that you don't actually in other modules you know this these challenges of conducting legal research when you're looking mm-hmm. for something very in a very specific area yeah. Yeah. and you'll get great pleasure as well I would say this when you mm. find a case that does sit <laughs> on fours with your case yes. you know so you're like oh that's great now you can and, and I, I would go back to what you, actually you said Ursula mm. uh, the four cases absolutely yeah I when I go into court and I see somebody with a lot of paper with the ridiculous amount of cases they're relying on mm. for me I feel that means they don't have a very strong case Yes, so you have a few cases that are, you know, high, like Supreme Court level. That's the best, obviously, because yeah. that's the highest court. But a recent kind of high court, court of appeal cases, you can hang your hat on them. You don't need to go back to the beginning of time. You know, I, I, sorry, this is something practical as well. Judges don't like to be treated like idiots in one sense, but in another sense, they don't want counsel coming in and expecting them to know all these cases because they're human and they don't. They might do a particular list and be very familiar in one area. They're sitting in that list for a number of years maybe, but sometimes they're not and they may have moved into an area. And it's important to 
you know, start build a foundation up and information, the background of the case, start laying the law down. And a judge will tell you, by the way, that's I'm familiar with that case. You can go ahead, you know, so there's no problem not going back into the beginning of time to Donahue and Stevenson yeah. or something like that. You know, yeah, exactly. There's a, a certain level of it's presumed basic uh, knowledge of law that everyone should have if you're practicing. But maybe for mooting purposes, it's no harm just to touch on it. Yes. This was, a, yeah. you know, well-established principles of or in the seminal yeah. case of, but then bring it up to current law. And I think that's what would distinguish, you know, the serious mooters to mm. more kind of just intermediate or basic and novice level. Mm-hmm. And now maybe moving on then as well, um, just I was thinking in relation to legislation that was passed, was it last week or the week before just about enhancing kind of remote hearings and now that there is also more virtual mooting going on? I mean, first of all, how do you feel about it? And then I suppose, how do you kind of prepare for that and get yourself into that kind of, you know, professional mode? especially if you're going to end up dealing with let's say you know software issues or internet issues and you have all these kind of external factors now that become like i suppose a hindrance onto your own persuasion in your own case if you have to deal with them where you would have never had to have done so before yeah so there's definitely been a move because we as we understand it at the time of this podcast that the um that this will continue on for at least another eight months. Um, so we have tried to adapt. There's been a serious lack of investment into the court's uh, services, in my view, uh, with IT. For a number of years now, They have people have been trying to move on to this kind of e-court or paperless practice. And this uh, p- pandemic has, it, it posit- in a positive way, has kicked us screaming into the 21st century. But it's yeah. it's actually working out quite well, uh, in my view. It's, it's a little bit concerning for young bar. So people starting practice... In in my view, because I feel they're going to maybe miss out on some of the normal, you know, work of the bar being around, being called in last minute to go into a case or go into do a list. They're going to miss out on that and hopefully things will turn around in, in time. But yeah, I was thinking that in the sense of if a lot of this moves online now, will it affect kind of the skills development of a young barrister or, or a mooter in the fact that they don't have to prepare physical cases of authority anymore? They don't have to put that time in and then, you know, they don't get the experience of having to, you know, do something at the last minute and rush off to a case if it's all happening kind of from home. If I'm on the kind of, I don't know if I'm on the correct line of thinking in that as well. Oh, you are, um, you are, you are, you are absolutely right. Um, of course, it's going to have a massive impact. Uh, and that's why we do want to get back into court because some cases can be run remotely. So there are certain cases that are done on affidavit based. So there is no witnesses, but there's obviously other cases that you need to to call witnesses and the you know art of cross-examination which is deserving of its own module in the in the college is something that could not be done in my view over a computer because you it's just missing the necessary components to get those answers that you require from a witness or to trip them up even (laughs) and so you know you won't because i get the time delay like there'll be you know it's not the same and the pressure people feel feel when they're in court you know that can't be understated you know, there's definitely a sense of occasion when you're in court and that witnesses would be concerned about. But for devils, absolutely, I'm concerned for devils at the moment. If I'm honest, people starting then this year in particular, hopefully next year, things will have, will be living with COVID, I'd imagine at that stage. So things will go back. Like the courts are still operating, though they're not not operating. But um, if it's possible to do remote hearings, they are the preference. Certainly, I've been doing lists online and so that's brilliant because you could be in court all day sitting there just doing nothing but you know I would like and I've I've said this to the bar council I do want to say you know the younger practitioners so young bars years one to seven that they ought to be allowed to log into any of these courtrooms online and still listen to even though it's a different type of advocacy 
absolutely it is you're not seeing the body language the how people are holding themselves or how they're projecting their voice in the same way as over a computer it's certainly they can certainly learn at this time um how people structure arguments so a lot of like the skills like Ursula is referring to about preparing the research, you know, how to structure an argument, your writing skills that you acquire, you will still be able to devil. That's not going to be a problem. But I think you are going to miss the the hustle and bustle of what it is to be down the bar. Because when you do qualify, you know, you're at the college level now, but when you go on and if you say do the bar or become a solicitor, but there's a certain buzz and, you know, you feel very happy in yourself, I suppose, when you've qualified and you feel you're part of the buzz now and you're barrister, you're wearing your tabs, your gown. And, you know, that's sad if people aren't going to have that same experience. But look, I'm hopeful that that will change. But in terms of the remote access, I would be an advocate for that into the future, particularly those on circuit. So when I say circuit, that's really anything outside Dublin would be considered circuit practitioners. And it is very difficult for them to drive from, say, Ackle Island to Dublin because they have a motion in a high court case that they're only going to get paid, say, 250 euro for, that they're having to travel all the way up the country. It would be, in my view, a good waste, good for the environment as well, that people in those type of motions could do them remotely. And the courts have a website, I think it's called Pepix, is the, the platform they're using at the moment that's secure as I understand it but it's there's no there could be breakout rooms and things like that in it but at the, at the moment it's a fairly basic level entry but certainly I've done a CPD on remote hearings for a team of solicitors on this but just even things like making sure your camera is at the right level and it's not going up into your nostrils and so you will have to start thinking about how you're changing courses and I suppose maybe even for NUI people are going out it would be no harm to do kind of even a day on remote hearings or something like along those lines about dealing yeah. with things remotely now just in terms of yeah. sound making sure you don't have pictures in the background family privacy issues along them lines as well I think that certainly the crisis that coronavirus has brought has certainly made us rethink so many things about how we work and technology in the courts is one of those I guess you can see it kind of in two ways firstly with the remote hearings that you've referred to there and that technology could certainly be used to deal with you know, at, at, at least the procedural matters that don't really need that kind of presence in court in the same way that a trial might need it. And particularly then you might kind of remove some of the disadvantages. I agree entirely that there is this social professional network that develops when people simply are in the same building together. And that will be lost, of course, if we go completely to remote hearings. So maybe a balance could be struck that some of the procedural aspects which really don't need a court presence could be dealt with remotely. Whereas then you could have those things like trials um, dealt with in in courts. So you retain some of the positives, we like, of the in-court experience. Mm -hmm. But the other way technology can be used, which is not at all related to remote hearings, but just related to how trials are run in a physical setting in the courtroom. And that is, I think, the, the paperless litigation, which, you know, has been used in a couple of Irish cases already, I think, in the High Court. And we have used it last year for the first time in the Moot module. They called it the e-court technology. And there's a company in Ireland, only one that I know of, but there may be others that provide the technology that would support it. Now, it worked really well. It just meant putting all of the documentation online, well, on online, on your tablet. And that tablet then is mirrored in, to a tablet that the judge has. And it removes the need to have all of this paper, if you like. Now, 
Matthew, you were talking about skills and the you know importance maybe of not losing some of the skills you might need if the technology lets you down. So we did have physical copies as well. So we didn't have kind of the environmental advantage we might have had had we been able to do it completely and paper free. Because for the moment, of course, that isn't really the practice in the courts that things are done in a paperless fashion. So we also needed to have the paper so that people would just know how to assemble something like a book of authorities and how to refer to it um, if needs be. But I think that e-court technologies really could be something that would be very useful into the future because, I mean, I'm not the only heart that breaks a little bit when they go into a courthouse and see the boxes and boxes of paper that will be filed away, I'm sure, and then eventually shredded. But the waste is just enormous, particularly in cases that settle. So you never have to actually dive through these at all. You know, it's all just done almost as a way of uh, putting your opposing side off, you know. So generational thing, I think, as well. Mm. I think um where I'd be uh, okay with having uh, e-authorities because I mm-hmm. think that is an awful waste. I have a problem printing all them out for yeah. a judge because I feel we may not even open half of these. Yeah. So I do feel it's a waste of paper and money. They should definitely be, you know, emailed in advance in a zip file or whatever it might mm-hmm. be, USB that's given to the judge in advance. I'd find it a bit more difficult to be getting e-paper from, I suppose, papers um, sent electronically to me by a solicitor I do a lot of more kind of banking stuff as well. So a lot of the words was very tiny in it. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's handy to, and I know, look, it is a generational thing. So I absolutely think, not that I'm that old either, but <laughs> you know, I started doing this in the school level because, you know, we start from school level getting a yes. book and, and marking the book and, you know, color different colors yeah. and pens. And, you know, you, you kind of get trained to study like that. So I think maybe we should try and, think about this for the future as in the kids even now I understand do have some schools have iPads so if it's certainly it's something that's coming and there's definitely mm-hmm. women or a woman I know in, in the, the four courts and she'd be you know mature enough lady she has gone paperless in fairness to her or like I well done I personally would find it a bit difficult I do like to have my physical page to go through yeah. stuff but certainly I would be open to um smaller cases if it was a smaller case mm-hmm. I'm happy to get it but some paper, some cases you may have maybe boxes of paper because there's that much. And if you had to sit there on a computer and go through them, even with I think it's one note where you can kind of tab and mark things, I personally would find it very difficult. There's something, and it's just probably a training thing. So maybe yeah. starting from school level into college in the future will change that entirely and it will go paperless. But certainly for today, everybody could be working off um no authorities they could be done they could be uh, uh, mm. electronic file that both sides could have and that would save significant you know for the environment and monies for people yeah and, and actually echo- Benita, that just brings me into um, a question i actually was going to just bring up without going like running the risk of going off topic um in modernizing the courts and moving more things online i suppose in turn you're obviously saving like time and travel for barristers in certain areas whether if they're on circuit or if they're smaller events is that going to have maybe like a long-term maybe positive cost effect for like you know in terms of engaging a barrister um, well actually barristers aren't that expensive <laughs> um, I would say that would be my view I'm not trying to give a prop the bar up here but uh you know a lot of the costs that people face is solicitor costs because they actually have a lot of the overheads barristers don't really in my view there's not a massive um, they're not that expensive if you actually drilled into the cost of what barristers get paid okay if you've heard the big cases you know the tribunals and that and that's they are the the very small few that are earning or have got that type of money most barristers aren't earning 
that crazy money. I would mm. just say that they're not. They're, you can have a decent wage, you know, decent livelihood from it. But the fees are generally solicitor. So will that translate? I'm not sure if it would translate as cost savings onto clients personally then well then the savings should be made at the solicitor side likewise maybe a consultation doing it online you're still going to have to pay for your consultation i don't personally charge people for travel time but if there was someone that charges for that certainly then you wouldn't be charged for travel time if you're doing it online doing it through i wouldn't say zoom i think there's a big problem we have in terms of security at the moment how these meetings are being Mm. done personally people are using the likes of zoom but really it's a good bit if anyone out there is in the business studies class or wants to make business idea i think some kind of encrypted version of zoom for sensitive meetings that's affordable would be great for solicitors and there's about forty thousand solicitors in ireland so there's a big market there i think it's good for solicitors in terms of getting business that's not necessarily in their county so you know i think i see the benefits for and even for me maybe but you know that i could have consultations with solicitors i'm I'm based in dublin kind of loud area region and you know i could have consultations with someone in cork then without having to travel down now so you know that would make it easier but I don't know about cost effectiveness. Yeah. It, you know, it may it may have a knock on effect if, say, you could sit at home and you could do your other work. A lot of the problems we have is you might have a court case listed for a certain day, and the judges have put too many cases in list, and you may not get reached. So you can't be expected to, or you might get on at the very last minute of the day, ten to four, and you only got half an hour done, and you have to go back the next day, and then people are subject to a second day fee because you've had to give your day up for that. Mm. But if you were able to work from home and just be kind of waiting, maybe then that could be a cost saving for people because you would still be able to use your time to work on other cases. I think that makes sense, um, Venetia, because I think a lot of the costs aren't actually, I mean, even though there are costs, of course, associated with paper and travel, they aren't the major costs possibly. No. Um, I think there are like lots of inefficiencies within the system. And I don't know, you know, really where the fault with that lies or how easy it is to remove those inefficiencies. But yes, like we would bring the students down to the courthouse, you know, on the days that the High Court in particular are on Galway. And, you know, there could be a lot of people just hovering around the corridors in negotiations, possibly to settle a case. And the judge is just waiting to see if they can arrive at some kind of settlement and nothing can happen either if that case is the one that's up. But they ask, you know, for a bit of time time. to chat and or the judge themselves might be inclined to shoo them out of the courtroom if they think they haven't given enough time to reaching a settlement. And and then, yes, exactly. People waiting to have their case called and not just the barristers, but all of the witnesses and the experts who've been called in to appear. Mm. And that could go on for a number of days. So, yeah, but I I don't fully know what can be done about that, I guess, maybe more. Yeah, I think there was something there recently within the PR. Like certainly, if that was a PI, there might have been a PI list sitting yes, that day. They were um, yeah, the, the t- ones we tend to go yeah. to, all right. And a lot of them do try to, you know, people want to bring you up to the court steps, and then they try mm. to settle because you know it's always a risk for people either side whether it's going to go our way or people know they might have a bit of weakness in their case so they want to do a deal that's uh, palatable for both sides for their clients yeah. but there was some kind of a direction there I think recently or, or certainly um, something from the from the judiciary about basically this needs to stop Yeah, uh, I don't know if that was in the newspapers I can't really remember but these things could be dealt with through practice direct- directions I was talking about earlier on that, yes. you know maybe um, and, and as well I don't know if your view in it, but even the PIAB yeah. system that was working quite well yes. uh, you know I think now it's kind of not doing as good a job as it ought to be doing because 
if yeah. I've seen there recently when you go in, I didn't know this now, but I think it's changed since maybe when I studied about it. But if you say have a trip and fall and you go through PIAB, they then write to the other side and that's fine. But now if they want to get an assessment done, they have to pay 600 euro. So sometimes they'll just say, well, I'm not bothered doing that. I'm not going to look for the assessment because I have to pay 600 euro. This person may not even bring this case. So let's just run it and see. So that's contrary, yeah. I think, to the spirit of what PIAB is trying to do, penalizing people to actually look to get them to assess the claim. So I think that number should be reduced down to something more nominal, like 250 euro to encourage people to try and settle cases because the personal injuries aspect is taking up far too much yeah. time in the court because they're listing cases and nobody is even thinking about settling till the morning of the case. So, you know, that should be removed. I, I don't know how they can do that, but certainly yes, maybe no, if you I agree. look stand and- back yeah yes no I agree and I've noticed myself in the last 12 to 18 months even though I'm not in in practice obviously but that it seems that exactly as you said the injuries board PIAB seems to have lost that momentum it had in the early years and I'm not quite sure but there seems to be a bit of slippage in that people are now more inclined to buy not they can't bypass it but you know refer to the injuries board but then remove themselves from the process as is you know permissible of course under the way that the way that system works but remove it to to actually say well look we'll just take our chances before the courts and I'm not mm. quite sure why that's happening but it would be interesting for somebody if they had well, the I time. I think it might be that reason because they have to pay they have to yeah, pay a okay. well, if yes. it's an insurance company they'd probably say well look we look at it and they would like an insurance company would you know work on that basis of statistics mm. so a lot of people might chance their arm going through PIAB and they may have a genuine injury causation yes. is a problem. Yeah. Um, and uh, they say, well, look, we, we have to pay 600 euro. Yeah. Let's just ref- not go in for the assessment. So they just let the clock run down and then yes. PIAB will issue an authorization mm. number that you need to go to court, obviously. And then they'll see, will this person in fact issue a summons, yes. a PI summons against us? And then at that stage, they might consider. So that's a yes. kind of a bit of a problem. Like I think a gamble, it's yeah. Okay. Mm, that's why yeah, I think but that's interesting out. that's interesting that may well be as you say the reason they when they work that out over a cost of mm. a year they probably work out that they're saving themselves yeah you know, i'm afraid i have to interrupt this is actually getting really interesting i honestly feel like we could probably go for another hour but i think we're just getting conscious of time so it would, honestly this was actually fantastic because i think we're after covering a huge amount but if i if, if would you give uh, just for final thoughts on people undertaking booting and kind of like you know would you do it and kind of the last thoughts and also one question which i encountered several times at when i was mooting last year what side do you sit on? <laughs> okay. Very good. Well, I might just well, deal briefly with why would you do it? I mean, as you know, when you mentioned at the top of the uh, podcast, Matthew, that mooting now will be compulsory for all second year students at NUI Galway. And I'm really thrilled about that. And we're going to have our own moot course room as well on campus, which will be really exciting for us too. So those students will be doing it, whether, you know, in the kind of a non-voluntary capacity possibly but not to be at all anxious about it. If anything, this podcast has shown them kind of the rich value of engaging and mooting. And for those who won't be doing it through a compulsory module and you may be petrified at the thought of standing up, you're exactly who we need to do um, some mooting because you can get rid of that fear um, by engaging in it, you know, a, a kind of standing up to your greatest fears, I guess, in either speaking or researching or writing and coming out of it the other side. So highly encourage everybody to do it. Look forward to the seconders who will be doing it and also look forward to those who won't be doing it as a module but might engage in something like the Tom 
Mo Mali Moosh that uh, Matthew will be running with the Law Society and getting out there and giving it a go. Thank you so much, Ursula. And Venetia, what side do we sit on? <laughs> Um, And the civil courts, it's the left if you're the plaintiff and the right if you're the defendant, but it's the opposite side in the criminal courts. But if in doubt, ask a question to somebody else. Yeah. And honestly, I just can't thank you both enough. And also to point out that Venetia is going to be joined by her colleague in February to do a full interactive seminar on human rights. And we're going to be covering the generality of human rights and asylum and immigration. And that's going to be in February. So hopefully everyone will consider taking part in a moot. I definitely recommend it. It is terrifying the first time you do it, but it is it is so worth it once you get it done. And thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) 